Welcome back to Institutionalized, a podcast about American institutions and why they've gone crazy. I'm Aaron Sabarium, a reporter at the Washington Free Beacon. And I'm Charles Fain Lehman, a fellow at the Manhattan Institute and contributing editor of City Journal. Charles, how are you doing today? I'm I'm good. My exciting, my exciting life activity. We took my kid, he's he's one and a half, and we took him to so for listeners who don't know, this National Air and Space Museum in DC. And then there's a lot of stuff they can't fit in the Air and Space Museum, and they keep it all out in a hangar in Virginia called the Uverhazi Center, which is just like this enormous space filled with planes. Like they have they have, the, they have an SR-71 there, they have a Concord jet there, they have a space shuttle there. So we took my kid there this weekend. And he's like, he's, he's, he's like building his vocabulary and he knows the word plane. And so he just stood there and going, plane, 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 plane. So he was a little overwhelmed, but in a good way. That's uh, that's oh, so he so he's so he's verbal now. Oh yeah, oh yeah. We have we've many words. Very verbal. Very. Oh very, okay. Very does, does does okay? So he knows words. Does he does he have crushes yet? Does he have crushes yet, Charles? No, no. He does. He he might might. <laughs> he does not have crushes yet. No, my child is a word cell in both senses of the term. Oh boy. Yeah, no, no. We 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 successfully avoided CRTing my child. My child has not been groomed yet. There's, uh, there's he hasn't, no grooming yet, going on that I know. Yet about. is the operative word. <laughs> yet is the operative word. Speaking of which, Speaking Charles, of the discourse. Yeah, wh- why don't you introduce our topic, Charles? Uh, why don't I introduce our topic? It's a dark transition. No, yeah. I mean, so so we're talking very broadly today. Well, we're talking specifically about a paper that our that our guest authored, but we're talking very broadly about. LGBT identification, rising LGBT identification, particularly among young people, which sort of dovetails with this discourse about LGBT in schools. What the heck does that mean? How should that be taught? That's not what we're focusing on, but it's related. But really, it's a it's an issue just on many institutions in American society. What we can say is there's a, now a wide variety of survey evidence that our guest goes into that suggests there's been a dramatic increase in identifying as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, whatever you want to been that queer, whatever you want to be in that group as. There's clearly been a dramatic embrace across culture over the past 20 to 30 years, as exemplified, for example, by the phenomenon of corporate pride month participation. Any 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 of your favorite brands has gone rainbow this month, then you know that they're on board. And what we're interested in is, you know, is what is what is the character of this this dramatic increase, not even just in acceptance, but in in participation in LGBT identity categories. What what's going on there? Aaron, what are your before you choose your guests, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so I think both of us, all of us are probably broadly in agreement that there has been not just a decline in stigma, right, around LGBT identity, but in fact, positive incentives to claim the identity in certain contexts. You know, there's social incentives, right? It's seen as kind of a cool, trendy thing, maybe in certain progressive avant-garde circles. But what I'm more interested in is kind of the top-down pressures that seem to have made this beneficial. Obviously, there's bottom-up pressures. People talk about Tumblr sometimes as a driver of, in particular, trans identity. But, you know, there's also there's also top-down ones, right? Like if you work for a law firm, you know, at law firms, they often try to have their teams on any given case be diverse, right? Have an X number, you know, 50% diverse lawyers. And LGBT is included in the diverse category, 
right? So if you're a white male, you know, your only way to, to, to be included in that and potentially be promoted at some law firms is actually to say you're gay. I mean, that's like not me making that up. That just is a incentive in many law firms. And you see that in Hollywood and, and we'll, we'll get to this in a minute, but a part of why I'm interested in that is our guest work shows that, you know, the rise in LGBT identification is not confined just to like, you know, college campuses, you see it places you wouldn't expect among demographics you wouldn't expect, which to me suggests maybe just that there's been a broad cultural shift, but also that there may be kind of material incentives that sort of have, have percolated throughout the economy and society that actually do, you know, incentivize people who are either have some, you know, fleeting instances of same sex attraction or fleeting feelings of bodily discomfort to then claim this entire new identity, right? When in a previous era without the incentives, they probably would have just been like, oh, I'm like straight, but you know, sometimes, you know, people of the same gender can be cute. I don't know. So that's kind of my take on it. What about you, Charles? Yeah. I mean, so to me, A, I'm interested in sort of the, 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 the sort of positive finding in our guest report that I'm most interested in is this mismatch, this this disconnection between same-sex attraction, self-professed same-sex attraction, identification with same-sex attraction, and actual same-sex sexual behavior, that the gap between those two things has grown dramatically. And you know, to, to me, that suggests to me, and this is, you know, related to what you're talking about, that there's a signaling story here. Um, there's a decline, you know, uh, there's a long story history of stigmatization of anything sort of outside of the, the heterosexual, cisgendered, quote-unquote, norm, but I think, you know, there's, there's clearly been an erosion of that stigma over the past several decades, even as you're alluding to in some places, there's an incentive for it. And so that's created a dynamic, in my view, where, you know, there's a benefit to signaling participation in this group, benefit to signaling membership. But it, there, isn't, there isn't necessarily, it, it, it isn't purely because, it's clearly isn't purely because people want to act on those attractions. So I'm interested in that mismatch and what's driving that mismatch in particular, that, that you know, the, the gap between stated preference and reveal preference, as it were. A good guy to talk to about all of this is our guest. Aaron, do you want to, do you want to introduce? Yeah. So today we are talking to a friend of the pod, Eric Kaufman. He's a professor of politics at Birkbeck College, University of London, where he focuses on cultural politics, religious and national identity, and demography. He's also a fellow, an adjunct fellow at the Manhattan Institute where Charles works, and a research fellow at the Center for the Study of Partisanship and Ideology, which published the paper that we're going to be talking about today. Eric, welcome to the podcast. Well, it's great to be here, Aaron and Charles, and to be among those whose work I follow and very much admire. So thanks for having me on. Thank you. So we, so we often like to start with a provocative question. Uh, <laughs> so, so a lot of people are, are saying that they're LGBT today. What percentage of those people actually aren't? Actually are. I would say that it's less than half. And amongst women, it is considerably lower than that. So that would be my opening gambit. I mean, the other thing I should add is I think these estimates are from the surveys are also skewed and need to be deflated by a factor of at least two. But that's another much more boring methodological issue. But yeah, I would say sort of divided by two. Okay, that's, that's <laughs> no, so to be clear, you're accusing you're accusing half of the LGBT population of lying. 
What I'm saying is, well, I think, well, okay. What I'm I, saying is, I think I'm people joking. who are who have only incidental attractions are self-labeling as LGBT when, let's just say, conventionally that label has been reserved for those with sustained and strong attractions. And so <laughs> that's sort of that's sort of how I would pitch this. Is is why I would deflate a lot of those claims. Is simply, I don't think such incidental attractions necessarily are what we think about when we think about a, a person being gay or lesbian. Mm-hmm. Let's say. So let's 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 back up and talk about your report. You in your in your report for CSPI, you're basically looking at a wide variety of survey data to try to pin down various facts about the LGBT LGBT ID population. Let's just sort of dive into that. We start with ID. What trends do you find in people's identification as LGBT? LGBT. How does that break down? What are the what do the dynamics look like? Well, it, it, it's amazing how much the different surveys agree, right? So you have, you know, the FIRE surveys of American undergraduates, total of 55,000, basically between the ages of 18 and 24, but mainly 18 to 22. And the numbers are sort of like around a quarter there. And then the uh, Cooperative Congressional Election Study, if we take the under 25s, it's, it's like over 30%, even with the survey weights. Gallup comes along and it's 21%. Now, if we want to talk about trends, Gallup, you can trace it back to, you know, the, I think around about 2008. And you can see those numbers have more or less tripled since, since 2007, eight. Really in about 10 years, we've seen a tripling from in that 18 to 25 group from something like 7% to, to 21%. The general social survey you know, if you look at the under 30s, it's gone from about five and a half percent to around 17 percent since 2008. So, yeah, we're kind of looking at about a tripling in the last not much more than 10 years on a number of different surveys for that under 25 group or, or, or perhaps the under 30 group. So that is just an absolutely astounding change. And uh, it's one that just got me curious because this isn't an area I'd done any real work on. And I just thought, can this be right? I, I want to look into this a little more clearly. Yeah, well, and so so one of the one of the phenomena that I I alluded to, we talked about already, is that there's a divergence between self-reported sexual behavior and self-reported sexual identification. Can you talk about that divergence, and then we'll get to some of the heterogeneities? Yeah, because the general social survey has a question on sex partners in the last year, last five years, and their gender, and so you could see you can compare. LGBT identification with, if you like, LGBT behavior, sex partnering. And what that shows is that if you take that young group under 30, we have an increase of about four points between 2008 and 2021, and an increase in 11 points in the same period in LGBT identification. So the increase in identification is running at over twice as, as, as high as, as the increase in same-sex partnering. And that increase in same-sex partnering, by the way, doesn't take into account the sort of growing share of young people who haven't had sex at all, which is, or haven't, don't report any in the last five years. If you take that into account, the actual share of same-sex partnering has only probably gone up about three points. And so the identity is up 11 points. And so that sort of is a huge and widening disparity. Here's another little stat for you, which is the biggest growth category has been female bisexuals in this. And they make up, you know, uh, there's sort of over three times as many bisexuals as, say, lesbians amongst women. 
what you do, what you can see is amongst this sort of female bisexual population, the share who've had what what I guess I would call conventional heterosexual behavior has increased from 13% in 2008, 10 to almost 60% in 2021. So from quite a small minority with the conventional heterosexual behavior to a clear majority in the last two data points, 2018 and 2021. So that kind of fits with this story of identity diverging from behavior. And I think so the trends, particularly amongst women, are very much this divergence effect. Yeah, so so let's talk about a little bit more about those groups. Which which components of LGBT you see you alluded to bisexual identification among women are driving the increase, and then which populations—women, men, black, white, high, low SES—are driving are, are have grown more likely to identify as LGBT? How does that break down? Yeah, I mean, I think the largest group is the female bisexual, and that's sort of the category that's grown the most. But we've actually also seen some growth in, in male bisexual, which would be sort of the second most rapid. And then the least growth is in gay and lesbian, the traditional categories. There's been some increase, but it's been less. And it also, with the different data sources, you know, they don't tell a 100% consistent story. But there's no question most of the action has been on the bisexual front, as well as the trans. Of course, that's a very small group. And so that, that's the sort of overall breakdown. Now, the question is, which groups? So one of the things, if you look at the FIRE data, that's undergraduate students at elite colleges, basically, between 50 and 150, largely, almost overwhelmingly elite colleges. And the reality is actually, if we look at some other data sources, having a degree or being a student does not predict being more likely to be LGBT. In fact, probably slightly the reverse when you control for various demographic things. So it seems like a kind of lower SES, low education demographic actually has a slightly higher propensity to report, which I didn't expect because I thought this might be linked to explicitly political factors. Now, it is linked to political factors, but that link is much stronger amongst the college-educated sample where you really see, you know, attitudes to shout-downs of speakers. You know, that's a very good predictor of being LGBT or or taking gender studies or, or black studies or whatever. Whereas amongst the non-university group, it's a little more diffuse than that. I think you could still see that the liberal to conservative ideology scale really matters. And, and especially on that ideology scale from very liberal to very conservative, let's say a five-point scale, it's the very liberal fifth that really stand out from all the others, much more so than the slight liberals. And that very liberal fifth, that also matters among, say, African-American, non-college educated women. So now, and yet we know from other studies that the, the understanding of the term liberal and conservative in that community is very, very different, much less sorted into an ideology. Uh, but yet it is connected psychologically, according to research, to certain psychological predisposition. So I do think the psychological predispositions are coming out more strongly as LGBT identity. But there's no question that ideology is really a big, big issue here in terms of a predictor. Right. Well, so so just these are a few data points from your report that in in data from the Foundation for Individual Rights and Education, it finds that 49% of very liberal students, so this is the most liberal fit, 49% of those students say they're LGBT compared to 5% of very conservative students. Right. And then the other statistic that I that I just thought was like hilarious and also just 
amazing, like confirmed all of my priors was white female students in leading U.S. universities who identify as very liberal and support shouting down speakers to prevent them from uttering harmful speech have a nearly seven in 10 chance of identifying as LGBT. So, you know, at, at like Yale Law School, you know, the, the, the <laughs> kids who shouted down that, that Federalist Society event, you know, when you're looking at the white females in that group, and there was quite a few of them, the studies show that they are much more likely than not to be LGBT. But you also find that among very liberal minority female students with the same exact attitudes towards free speech, the probability of identifying as LGBT drops to around 55%. So, so, I mean, what do you, what do you make of that? Well, there's two things. I mean, one is that, yeah, (laughs) one is that you're absolutely right. That group of Yale law students would probably be majority LGBT, at least on the female side, but there's a couple of things going on. I mean, one is that it seems that amongst that elite university student group, explicitly political commitments, like the idea that being heterosexual is in some way conforming to a power structure, I mean, and that you've got to be against it. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if that's a motivation. So something that is what I would call cultural socialism or an explicit cultural left motivation is playing a role for them. Interestingly, by the way, also at the other end of the spectrum for conservative students, I mean, they are significantly less LGBT than they're than their equivalent non-student. So there's almost like a political, you know, something political might also be happening the other way. Whereas if you look at the CCES data, you will find less of a gradient, although there's still a strong political and ideological gradient. It's not as extreme as that. The second thing, of course, however, is the racial dynamics, which is that polarization is and this is something I, I, I've gave, given a paper on in the past. I mean, polarization is much more of a white thing than a minority thing. And so there's a much greater sorting of issues into ideologies, into party identities in the whites group more generally. And so there's, I mean, because ideology is such an important identity for white, particularly educated whites, you're going to see much stronger correlations between ideology and, and many things amongst whites than minorities sort of particularly amongst college educated whites. So yeah, that's sort of how I would how I would interpret that set of numbers. So I kind of think there's sort of two stories. I mean, one is the college story uh, is is involves the great awakening, involves this idea of resistance to power structures and the patriarchy and all these sorts of things. Whereas I think for the non-college group and and not just but certainly non-college minorities, I think it's this broader cultural ambiance of sort of transgression and of being divergent and different, that being more interesting. And I think it's that kind of culture, which is there in social media and there perhaps in popular music and so on, which is maybe the bigger factor. If I were to to sort of claim it, it sort of fits in with my, the overall analysis here, which is that what I would call left modernist, left modernism in the culture, this fusion of that mm-hmm. kind of cultural transgression with the sort of, you know, oppressor oppressed left worldview that 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 is sort of a key, you know, this is the key cultural environment that these young people are bathed in. And that is prompting mm-hmm. them to identify wherever they can conceivably do so with one of these divergent categories. Right. But so I think we want to get in, we want to 
dive deeper into this and also get into some of the sort of institutional, you know, factors driving this stuff. But, but before we do, there's one thing I want to hone in on, which is, you know, you said that conservative college students are less likely than conservative non-college students to identify as LGBT. That is definitely the way it looks. Yes. Yeah. Well, so, so that seems like one powerful piece of evidence kind of against the thesis that this is all just, oh, we've gotten more tolerant. And that's the reason why more people are coming out as LGBT, right? You know, if that were the story, then you would expect conservative college students to be more LGBT, but instead you see the opposite. What, what, could you what talk you a get... bit about? Yeah. Could you? Well, so I, I guess, I, I think actually I have some evidence that didn't make it into the report, but did did make it into my Quillette piece that ran today, actually, which which I probably should have. I only got wind of it. It's being published actually very recently, but which I think really does address that argument pretty convincingly. And that is that if you divide, particularly if you look at women and you look at those who have same sex behavior and then group two, which is a larger group, which has no same sex behavior, but identifies as LGBT. So two discrete groups with no overlap, that the, the group that has same-sex behavior, probably lesbian, some bisexual, and the group that has LGBT identity but does not have any reported same-sex behavior. Mm-hmm. So that second group is the larger amongst women. What I then did is looked at, for example, the link to ideology. So the ideology is linked to the second, the identification with LGBT but it is much less linked to the first. In fact, amongst women, it didn't seem linked at all. So there didn't seem to be much ideological difference between women who had same-sex experiences and those who didn't. Whereas amongst women who identified as LGBT, it was the very liberal group that was hugely overrepresented. Mm-hmm. Now, if, if it were the case that it's about people being tolerated more now, you would have thought it's the ones who are engaging in same-sex behavior who might therefore be holding hands and be more visible out in public that would be experiencing the greater trauma. Mm-hmm. Because also the other thing I should have mentioned is that it's the group that has LGBT identity without the behavior that is experiencing much higher rates of mental illness. Whereas the group that's got the sexual behavior, actually their mental illness is not that much elevated compared to everyone else. So if the story is, well, it's the people who are, you know, because it's a more tolerant atmosphere, more people are coming out, the people who are experiencing this high mental illness, it's because they're being discriminated against or mm-hmm. experiencing trauma. And it just doesn't fit the data because the data actually shows the people who are uh, reporting the high mental illness are the identifiers who don't have the same sex behavior. Whereas actually in terms of visibility as a target, you would have expected the ones with the sexual behavior to be much more visible to ex- be experiencing the trauma. So yeah, I, I think just the way, and also by the way, if you look at the trends over time in both mental illness amongst LGBT and the and the ideological trend, I mean, that too really doesn't fit. Why would we expect amongst the very liberal, this jump from 11 to 34% LGBT identification? Why would, why would we expect the mental illness to have actually gotten worse mm-hmm. compared to the heterosexual population in the last 10 years at a time when attitudes have gotten a lot more tolerant. So yeah, I just think the 
the data really don't fit this account that somehow it's just mm-hmm. because things are getting more tolerant, there's more of them coming out of the closet. So let me let me build off of that to talk to solar at the mental yeah. illness phenomenon. I'm very interested in the rise of teenage depression, anxiety, this other sort of set of phenomena. And I'm sort of wanna wanna tease out the the causal story here a little bit. Is is there some underlying phenomena that is both increasing uh, LGBT ID and also mental illness ID? Is there some is one causing the other? How should we be thinking about the relationship between these two? dramatic increases. And do you think, you know, some of the bad explanations for the mental illness, you know, the rise of the iPhone or whatever, are persuasive for explaining the change in LGBT ID as well? Yeah, I, I think these these are really, I think this gets to the core of the study, really, because there's such a strong correlation between these three things, ideology, LGBT identity, reported mental health, particularly anxiety and depression, right? So what is the link there? And, and I think, you know, you mentioned social media, for example. I mean, in the GSS, there's a question on social media use, which does correlate with both LGBT and with mental illness. So there is there is an effect there. People who are on social media a lot are more likely to be both LGBT and to report anxiety and sadness. However, that doesn't explain most of the variation. So I think it only gets us part of the way there. The other explanation, which again would be this this notion that societies become more tolerant and therefore, you know, more more LGBT people are coming out of the closet. Again, I, I one of the reasons I think there's a problem here is this, if you look at the rates of mental illness, that that Derek Thompson piece in the Atlantic showed as of the last year, sort of three quarters of LGBT teens reporting persistent sadness or hopelessness, and that really rising. Since the records have been kept, really, the LGBT have had this increment of, I don't know, something like 20 points, and it just seems to be rising and rising. You wouldn't have thought that that would be the case. I mean, it just looks very odd. And I think when I sort of break this down into LGBT identifiers and LGBT behavior, and you see that it's about the identification and not the behavior, I, I think that does suggest, therefore, a certain kind of person is identifying into these marginalized or different groups. And, and maybe there's a certain cachet to be more interesting if you have some, even if you have perhaps some mental illness, I don't know, but there just does, or perhaps it's the culture of victimhood. I mean, I'm sort of talking about the impact of culture in the sociological approach. And I, I mentioned in my Quillette piece, this you know uh, article in the Wall Street Journal by Leah Greenfeld of Boston University, who's sort of taking a a Durkheimian sociological approach that says, you know, culture really matters. And we have to think about the possibility that if we've got a culture that is about breaking down boundaries and it's harder to build a stable identity, that's going to lead to more mental illness. And there's yet almost no literature on this in, in a the psychological community where, where it's all about, you know, more resources for more psychotherapy. And it's about all the pressures that these poor young people are under. And we have to empathize. I think that's important. It is important, obviously, to be able to seek help, but equally, I think there hasn't been attention paid to the other side of the coin, which is this sort of, to what extent is this culture encouraging people to be less resilient or to see forces outside themselves as leading to their predicament rather than being in control of their own predicament? Yeah, I mean, this you know, this also comports with Abigail Schreier, the, for listeners who don't know, she's the author of a book called Irreversible Damage, which is about rising trans identification among teenage girls. 
a phenomenon that she, after other literature labels uh, ROGD, Rapidons, gender dysphoria, sort of the, the unstated premises, at least within the, the, the rapidly growing population of trans non-binary identified teenage girls, it has less to do with sort of intrinsic wrong wrong body assignment, quote unquote, and more to do with peer group, peer effects that, you know, you're sort of one of the outcast girls, maybe you're at risk for mental illness, autism, any of these other set of things make you socially outcast. You and your peers decide, oh, actually a better description of my experience is the male experience and everyone becomes trans together. And there's, you know, there's also parent supports on this and the parent report gets disputed by people who don't want to believe that RGD is a thing. You go back and forth, back and forth. But so I, so I guess, you know, is, 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 is that part of the, the is, is the RGD phenomenon as it's been described part of your broader model? And also how do you think about trans in general within the context of your theory? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's that's really interesting, and I think it fits pretty well with what I'm saying. Even though I wasn't focusing specifically on trans, I think it it would all come under that umbrella of a certain kind of culture that encourages both difference being different from what is the norm, and also in some ways being vulnerable or a victim or in some way oppressed. Both of those things have now, of course, the second probably has more cachet in well-educated elite circles, and the first is more general, is sort of the way that I'm conceiving it. But yeah, I think also with the mental illness, it fits in with identifying as vulnerable and, 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 and that sort of victim-based identity and being different. So all of those common ingredients are there, I think, that both the, the trans situation and the wider kind of LGBT situation, and, and could explain this phenomenon of kind of a sort of believing without belonging, if you like, you know, where you're where you've got the identity, but not the behavior. And and I think they're just I mean, as Greenfeld says, there's basically been essentially no research in, in using this Durkheimian sociological perspective, like because if you in other parts of the social sciences, social construction is sort of the first port of call. And yet here, you know, the idea that these identities could be socially constructed, that that you know, people who have maybe just flickering sentiments might be encouraged to latch onto those sentiments, whether they be LGBT, whether they be sad or anxious, and define themselves that way, and then perhaps fall into some kind of a feedback loop as well. So I, I think there's just no real attention to that possibility. And I don't know who's going to actually do that kind of research, because it would be Obviously, it would cut against so many different interests and, and ideologies in, inside academia. It would be almost impossible to see that happen. So, 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 I mean, you clearly think that culture and cultural incentives have kind of played a role. At the same time, right, you know, you said that the, the rise in LGBT identity is not confined to just these very elite liberal spaces that obviously do privilege it. It's also propping up among demographics and, and communities where you don't see quite as overt a social incentive. So so what's your story for why it's happening there, why the increases happen there among the less privileged? Yeah, I, I think that's really interesting. So it's not just a sort of woke phenomenon, but I think it is linked into, I guess what I would call, you know, modernism, this idea of rejecting tradition and, and transgressing boundaries and being different and novelty and divergence and difference being prized within the popular culture that these young, particularly young people are imbibing at, a, at an age when their identities are somewhat more fluid. 
and their roles are somewhat more fluid and they're trying to sort of build an identity for themselves as they transition into adulthood. And so I think, because one thing that is very clear is that mm -hmm. there's a big difference between young and old in terms of propensity to identify. And there's a big difference between very liberal and certainly moderate or conservative. I mean, those, those differences are very strong. So we have some very clear relationships to work with. My interpretation is that this non-university, non-elite group is very much being influenced by, it's an interaction between this modernist culture and people who are probably psychologically perhaps more disposed to latch onto such identities. I mean, people who are maybe high in openness to experience, high in neuroticism, talking about the big five, big five psychological dispositions. So I think neuroticism, openness to experience probably are, are pretty high. And there is some work on this, which I cite in the previous work on this. And, and I think between that and this new culture that's emerged probably through social media, I think that explains it. I think the straight up social media exposure, the idea that it's just how long you're on your device, I, I just don't think that the, the medium itself explains it. I think it's a cultural it's, it's a cultural sensibility, but it's probably concentrated by these this medium within the young population at a time of identity fluidity, and that's what explains this rise. But I should also say, by the way, one well, we can come on to the trans thing in a minute because I think there's some evidence of that actually topping out and, and, and having declined in the last year. Yeah, well, that, that actually, that, that, that segues a bit into a question I want to ask, which is that some commentators, gay commentators like Andrew Sullivan have kind of challenged the very rubric of LGBT and said, you know, trans and in particular non-binary, these just seem like phenomenologically and almost ontologically different categories than LG or B and have thus asked, so why are we even grouping them together as a, as a political matter? And I guess I'm curious where you come down on that debate, kind of given what your data shows, including about trans. Yeah, I guess my, I'm sort of somewhere between Sullivan and, and, and everybody else in the sense that I, or not everybody else, but let's say the conventional liberal sure. view, because what you see in the fire data, which is a pretty good sample, is that there's a certain movement between trans and the other LGB categories. And certainly if we look at the 2020 and the 2021 data, the, there's in 2021, there was a big significant decline in trans identification but a concomitant rise, I think, in other of the LGB categories. Because the, the FIRE data actually asks two separate questions. One is your gender, male, female, or non-binary, and then it asks your sexuality separately. So you can cross-tabulate those and see that a significant number of people who, who say they're non-binary identify with one of the LGB sex categories. So mm -hmm. I think there is a certain Venn diagram where there is overlap. And I also... The predictors of these identities are, I mean, are quite similar in the sense that ideology right. being very liberal predicts trans as much as it does. It, it probably operates a little less well, well, though it actually predicts on gay as well, but in a different way. So yeah, I think there are probably, a, it's probably a similar milieu, similar ideological, perhaps psychological substrate is playing a role. But of course, you do have intellectual and ideological tensions within these these sure. particular groups, but to the extent that they can just focus on the kind of heterosexual behemoth as their kind of other. And I think it, there is probably a certain amount of unity there, 
even if there's also fractiousness. And I just, yeah. I'm just not close enough to, to that world to know how strong those divisions are. I mean, they are there, but right. it is interesting that. So I should say it's interesting that the same-sex behavior females do appear mm-hmm. to be politically quite different from the LGBT identifier females. And so that might be giving us a sense of there being a kind of perhaps a divide between, say, let's say lesbians who are properly, you know, who are our same sex behaving and the rest of the kind of female, particularly bisexual. Yeah. Well, this there's there's another element of this debate too, which is people like Katie Herzog and other lesbians have warned that sort of butch lesbians are disappearing because where sort of more stereotypically male women would just, they used to say, oh, well, I just, I'm a butch lesbian. Okay. Now the theory is that they're identifying as trans or non-binary and in some cases even getting surgeries and thus that the population of butch lesbians has declined precipitously. Does your data shed any light on that? Like it's an interesting theory, but I don't know if it's actually true. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. These sort of small very small microgroups are very hard to study quantitatively yeah. unless you unless you get get some very unique sample. So I wouldn't say I can comment too much on that, other than to say that I mean, if we just if you look at the trend, the trends in trans identification, I, I mentioned that in the fire data, when you put apply the survey weights, the same 50 schools, 2020, it was 1.5% trans or 1.5% non-binary, and that was down to 0.85 almost cut in half by 2021. Now, that's just one survey. It's a very large survey. So we've got tens of thousands there. But yeah, you could say it's a very specific survey. However, if you look at a number of other data sources, and this is from Britain and Canada, which have very similar numbers. So the YouGov YouGov survey of, you know, they got 5,018 to 20-year-olds, and it's something like 26% LGBT in that sample. But the census, which uses a census sampling frame, has 320,000. Has it shows a number of 7.9 percent or 7.6 percent instead of 26 percent. So the other thing to bear in mind is I think these surveys are getting, for a number of reasons, I think people who are LGBT identifying are more, much more likely to fill out surveys for psychological reasons, which we can get into. But even if you look at the, say, the Canadian, they had a question on trans and, and non-binary, and that showed that it's actually the the youngest group, the 15 to 19s, it was 0.73%, and amongst the 20 to 24s, it was 0.88 or something. What you saw, therefore, was that as you went from sort of 20 to 24 down to 15 to 19s, you saw a decline. And that sort of matches, again, these other data sets. In Britain, there's a gender reassignment clinic where all of the a gender reassignment requests are put through and the numbers kind of took off from a hundred or, or so, you know, maybe 15 years ago to into the almost 3000. And then it fell by about 400 last year. And I, the last year for which we have data, which is sort of 2020, 2021. So I guess these three sorts of data points do seem to suggest, at least to me, that there has been some drop. And one of the questions might be, well, if this gets going, if it becomes less trendy, are we going to see an unwinding of this? Or is that just one data point? I mean, I know there was a a survey came out by Pew showing 5% trans and non-binary, but the sample is really small. I just don't think you could take those, those small sample surveys seriously in any way. So, so, and I think, I think we're going to want to do maybe a couple more questions and then move on to closing thoughts, but I want to ask about 
and you you've talked about sort of political identification with LGBT ID and sort of this this cluster of very liberally identifying LGBT ID in identity if not action anxious, depressed. And these seem to be like a very active force. This, this, this cadre of people is a very active force in American politics. I think they have they have a huge amount of impact. So how do you think about, I mean, how do you, how do you think about the phenomenon? How do you think about the, like, why, why are they politically active? Why are they sort of out there on the, on, on the margins of political engagement? What should we make of that? Well, I think, I mean, there have been some commentators who, who I, 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 there was a piece in the Washington Post suggesting this is going to really have a big impact on U.S. politics in the liberal direction, and the gay vote's going to become more important. My own view is, in fact, the data don't show that. The, the, what the data, sh- you know, you could say, well, there's been this big rise in LGBT amongst youth. We know LGBT tend to be liberal. Surely that means more liberals. Actually, if you look at voting patterns amongst young Americans, it's been pretty static. There's been slight shift to the Democrats under Obama, slight shift away since and in fact, the correlation between ideology and being LGBT is much stronger than the correlation between party identity and being LGBT. And that sort of suggests that what's occurred is essentially the LGBT growth has simply happened within the very liberal side of the spectrum and has not really produced a lot more in, in the way of liberalism. So I don't think this is actually going to have much effect. And that's even before we get into thinking about what happens when these people get older. So my own kind of first take on it is no real impact on the partisan balance would be my prediction of of this. Now, the the second question, of course, is to what extent they're going to define what it means to be a liberal. Does being very liberal and a political activist mean that you have to, you can't identify as heterosexual or, you know, with one of these sort of normie categories? I think that's an interesting question to, to, to ask. And I don't know, I'd be curious at your thoughts. On, on how these things are related. I mean, the mental health crisis, if that continues, I mean, if that continues and the existing remedies are seen as inadequate, I mean, one of the responses from the conventional psychotherapy world seems to be, oh, well, it's all about big pharma. They're over-medicating, which may or may not be true. And I'm not an expert and there's debates go back and forth, but that's where the debate seems to be going. Like, that's the reason we have this problem is we don't have enough people doing talking therapy and we have too many people on Prozac. Could or couldn't be true, I don't know. But it seems to me that the debate that people aren't really willing to have is, well, are we focusing on, you know, are people being encouraged to identify with being a victim and vulnerable and and thinking that the outside world has, has got their fate in, in its hands? I mean, that kind of conversation seems to be less common. And yet, if this epidemic of, of mental illness continues, surely that would, I would have thought, prompt more soul searching. I, and, and so I think that could be an engine for change. So I, kind of the, the last big question I want to ask is, is about the role of government, but, but more broadly, just bureaucratic kind of forms and categories in constructing these identities. You know, I think a few years ago, there was a little minor, minor scandal brouhaha because Facebook released some list of like 50 genders that you could pick, right? And everyone laughed. But, but, you know, when you have these sorts of institutions that look like everyone's on Facebook, not just the college educated, that, that give you, give people this kind of conceptual, new novel conceptual vocabulary for, for thinking about themselves. I mean, intuitively, it seems like that's going to have an effect. So, so to what extent do you think that the, these cultural pressures, 
that have led to the rise of LGBT identity are are coming from sort of official or non-official kind of bureaucratic forms and practices that essentially validate the identities as real and in some cases even even manufacture identities that that didn't exist previously like my favorite is demisexual which right. means <laughs> which means that you you are only sexually attracted to people with with whom you have a close emotional connection which is to say that you are like the typical female basically oh, I, I, mean, I mean i mean i mean it's basically like you invent this like entirely novel almost lgbt <laughs> category to just capture a very conventional part of human experience so like like that process, how much do you think that plays a role here or not? Yeah, I mean, in general, I tend to be relatively skeptical of views that that officialdom can of its own construct these identities, or at least that that has much effect. I mean, I, I think it probably does have some effect in, in terms of reinforcing this broader social signal that this is an approved of and you know, trendy or in some ways desirable thing to have. I mean, but I don't think in and of itself, I don't mm-hmm. know that those census categories could do the work if it weren't for probably what's happening with social media influencers and pop and right. celebrity and sports and whatever. I, I, I would have thought it's, the, it's that other stuff, which is probably much more important. And I should also add, I don't, the, the results that I found for schools didn't show a huge difference between mm-hmm. even parochial and homeschool versus private and public. I, I, I'm not sure how much of an impact school as another institution actually mm-hmm. has either. It might reinforce, or at least certainly, yeah, I think it might help to reinforce, but it probably doesn't originate these ideas. So I'm still sort of largely convinced by the idea that it comes out of this youth pop culture social media influencer culture, celebrity culture, that that somehow is what's incubating this. How you even begin to, but but see, and the dilemma for sort of classical liberals is you, you want to be tolerant and allow people to express how they really feel, but at the same time, you don't want that to tip over into prioritizing and privileging sort of what you might call counter-cultural or, or divergent or, or mm. different identities from those that are just with the majority of the population. You want to actually accurately portray the mix in the society. So I think it's legitimate, say, for people to say, we want to have a, a discussion about you know, what is the mix of sexualities that's portrayed in the classroom. Not because we think that young people are going to be groomed into being trans or something, but just because it's actually the way society is. And it's it's partly a reflection of a social norm, which you want kids to understand. I think that's perfectly legitimate without having to invoke the, the this this whole idea that well somehow this is creating you know trans kids or whatever but i i think so because often the way in which this debate is shut down is to say well you know these schools aren't aren't grooming and therefore you know they should be allowed to get on and teach whatever content they wish well even if they aren't grooming which the evidence you know doesn't show that they are but it still would be legitimate, I think, for the mainstream of society to say we want to have an accurate, reasonably accurate, proportional representation of the actual sexualities that exist in society. So I think that's a legitimate position. Mm -hmm. Aaron, do you have closing thoughts? Do you have a a takeaway from our conversation? Yeah, I mean, you know, on one level, I think some of this data does 
support kind of the theory that that social media maybe has democratized some of the cultural forms incubated in elite spaces, right? And and kind of taken and allowed them to take on a life of their own, sort of, you know, and, and kind of exist and mutate sort of beyond the beyond the university and outside the you know corporate boardroom i think you know i am very struck by the the fact that the rise of lgbt identity is not as concentrated among the college educated as i would have thought at the same time the data just you know when i sort of would try to push i think eric on on various theories it, it seems like you know the data just doesn't tell like uh, it doesn't support like any sort of monocausal unified theory right I, I i think people like those theories i like those <laughs> theories they're psychologically pleasing but on this issue you know none none of them neither the kind of liberal it's all about just the erosion of stigma narrative or the conservative you know it's a concerted plot to make your kids trans like he's just none of the, the data just does not show that any of these actually is true and you know i think that that should maybe give us some epistemic humility and, and I would hope I realize it's a top cultural issue and that's, that's to be expected given the, especially given the medical dimensions, but I, I think it should maybe make us a little more, just make everyone chill out a little bit and, and take a step back and try to, you know, not get too heated because I don't actually <laughs> think that anybody knows for sure what's going on. Yeah, I mean, what, I, what are you oh yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, <laughs> yeah, no, no, Eric, go, go ahead. No, no, yeah. go ahead. Go no, ahead. no, I, I think the, the only thing I'd say is to bear in mind is just also the they're quite important but quite boring idea that the survey statistics are multiple of two or three times yep. the actual number. So that's also worth a bit, you know, that's a grain of salt we also have to be putting into the conversation. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's no that that makes sense. I mean, I think my big takeaway, you know, I'm I'm fascinated. We really do an episode of three on this. I'm fascinated by the rise in anxiety, major depression among adolescents. I think that nobody has a good story about what's causing it. It's a pronounced effect in every survey that looks at it. By the way, you know, my 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 my, my sort of hobby course here, my my soapbox here is that nobody can map between this and increases in suicide. They appear to be totally unrelated. So I think you know my big takeaway from this conversation is just seeing. The connection between LGBTID and progressive ideology and depression and anxiety, not as you know, one is causing the other, but it's this bundle where if you if you think about, you know, I, I again I think that we don't have a good account of that rising. I am I, you know, I, I even have this conversation, I've been skeptical about some sort of cultural explanations because I think that they end up being black boxes. It's sort of like, well, where do the values come from? Why do they why were they brought into existence? But I do think that if you can it, it it adds stakes to that conversation about why has there been this dramatic increase in depression, anxiety among young people? What's driving that? What's behind it? So really, it's 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 renewed my interest there. Well, that's great. I mean, because but I I think this there is a long sort of literature on the culture of expressive individualism and modernism. People like Daniel Bell, right? And going back to Durkheim, right? The whole impact of that sort of individuated kind of post-boundary kind of cult. I, I don't know. I, I guess it's these things are harder to prove. I guess you could do some kind of content analysis. <laughs> I mean, Putnam in his book, The Upswing, does talk about this a little bit, a, a kind of narcissism, but the, the number of people saying, I am a very special person, which kind of takes off. But of course, that that happened already by the 80s. So, I mean, I mean, I mean, 
this is a whole other cat of worms, but it, it's no, noteworthy that you're mostly talking about the United States, Canada, and Britain, which are all kind of part of the so-called Anglosphere, at least the U.S. and Britain, and, and to some extent Canada, you know, and that could just be that they have a common kind of cultural heritage. It could also be that common cultural heritage is due to a kind of common institutional heritage, and that maybe there are similarities in in the kind of structure of of those societies and governments that that produce this kind of more individualistic culture that in turn drives LGBT identification. I mean, there's all sorts of things it could be, and that obviously yeah. this would require. I mean, I mean, we can't, we can't, rehearse, we can't, we can't <laughs> rehearse Albion Seed, you know, and the entire corpus of like Daniel Bell's work. But but there there there's a lot there. You know? <laughs> uh, let's let's yeah let's let's leave it there. Uh, let's 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 do some recommending. Aaron, do you have a recommendation for our listeners this week? Yeah, you know, kind of an easy one, but Dave Chappelle had this great stand-up routine on Netflix called The Closer. It got a lot of people mad at him because he allegedly was transphobic and it was it was not transphobic, but he has this great riff on the so-called alphabet people. And part of the riff is like, he, he jokes about, you know, them all being in, in one, like he talks about the cues, so the queers, the ones who are like not entirely defined wanting to like just be in the group. I mean, he like makes fun of the kind of social publication thing and it's, he does so in a very, I think, entertaining way. So for those who have not seen that, I I recommend you check it out. Well, my my recommendation this week is a little bit of a classic. In 1989, Mike Gallagher, who gone to run the National Organization for Marriage, prominent commentator, authored a book called Enemies of Eros, which is about women's lib, the sexual revolution, and her criticism of it and support for the for the traditional family. But I think, you know, Enemies of Eros is the is the book that I give to people. I sort of want them to understand the rationality behind a socially conservative stance. I think you can still get it. I think it's still print. I bought it on Amazon. You can probably buy it on Amazon. Mm-hmm. So that's my that's my plug for the week. Eric, do you have something you think our readers should listen to, watch, read, et cetera, that you would recommend? Well, I, I just think that that Wall Street Journal article, in, I think it was the end of May by Leah Greenfeld, I think is an interesting op-ed uh, for some of this. That seems interesting. I, I, I just heard Francis Fukuyama and Andrew Sullivan with his new book, which sounded interesting as well about the origin of, of some of our, uh, well, of woke ideology, which, which sounded interesting to me. I haven't checked it out, but those are sort of two little micro recommendations I could make. Great. Eric, thank you so much for joining us on Institutionalized. Thank you, as always, to our producers at Nebulous. Listeners, if you have questions, comments, concerns, criticisms, survey questions that we'd like to direct our way, you can always find us on Twitter. I'm at Charles F. Lehman. Aaron is at Aaron Siberium. I think that's about all the time that we have. So until next time, I'm Charles Fain Lehman. I'm Aaron Siberium. And you've been listening to Institutionalized. We hope you'll join us again soon. 